Hello and welcome back. This is Robert Fleming, a partner in the Tucson, Arizona elder law firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC. You're listening to Elder Law Issues, our weekly podcast. And I'm sitting here with my partner, Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman. I thought, Elizabeth, maybe today we could talk about addiction and mental health. Oh gosh, Robert. Have, we meet with people every day who are either struggling with addiction and a mental health diagnosis themselves or have family or friends who are struggling. And what I would tell you is what I tell everybody who comes in our front door. Everybody is welcome and this is a judgment-free zone. And I take that very, very seriously when I'm having a meeting with a beneficiary, a family member, an estate planning client. Um, this is something that I've learned a lot about you from. It's been kind of an amazing thing as as a mentor. I don't know if you've taught, you know how much you've taught me about mental health and addiction and, and how to help serve the community. But you're somebody who has worked with people, Robert, as public fiduciary and as the founder of our practice who've been challenged by these issues. And I see that you treat everybody the same. Um, whether or not they are coming in the front door with a with a trouble or a family member who is really trying to figure out how to do an estate plan for a child who's constantly battling with addiction. Well, thank you. That's kind words. Uh, and and it's not just because I'm a nice guy, although I need to say I am a nice guy. <laughs> it's actually mandated by the rules of professional conduct for lawyers. We are required to treat people as nearly consistently as we can. Uh, and, and I think it's a good rule, and it's one that I've tried to live by professionally as well as personally. But that aside, uh, what, when, when you have a family member who has problems with substance abuse or problems of mental health that make it difficult for them to manage their own affairs, what do you need to do in your own planning for dealing with that family member? Well, Robert, I think the first thing is to be honest and to be honest about your concern and your frustration with planning because I think a lot of times we see family members come in the door and they're embarrassed that they have a son or a daughter who is battling with addiction um, and they also have no idea where to begin. And the thing that you need to do is first of all take care of yourself in your own estate. So when you're doing your powers of attorney and making decisions about who's going to be making an end-of-life decision for you or who is going to be managing your bank account, don't feel obligated to name that child who's struggling with addiction just because you love him or her. That's not a good reason to put that uh, person in charge of serious life decisions for you. So I think the first thing is we need people to take care of themselves. And we talk through decisions about who to nominate as a fiduciary if you're not comfortable or, uh, having a son or daughter or family member or spouse in that position because that person may struggle with mental health or, or addiction. Um, the other thing, Robert, is planning for a little bit about what happens when you are incapacitated and when you die. Who is going to be helping pay your bills? Who is going to settle your estate? And who is going to distribute money? And does that person who is struggling have the ability to manage funds for himself or herself? A client not too long ago came in to see me, somebody who I'd done estate planning before, before she came in to see me about making modifications and she said, I think I need to admit that my son needs to have a trust set up for his inheritance because he can't manage money and, 
he's always had problems. He's a spendthrift and, and he has mental health problems. And I've recently come to the conclusion that he uh, has addiction problems as well. So we need to have his share go into trust. And I, and I said, um, you know, that surprises me because the last time we did documents, you named him as the agent on your financial power of attorney. You named him as the successor trustee of your trust. And, and now you're telling me that he shouldn't even be able to manage his own money, much, the le- much less his sister's money. And, and I'm a little troubled that, uh, that, that maybe uh, uh, you were in a state of denial or something when we talked last time. And I guess the, the point of this long story is exactly that, that you need to be candid and honest with us and you need to be candid and honest with yourself. You need to recognize that it's not only are we going to be judgment judgment free, you should be judgment free about whether or not your family members can manage things. And Robert, when we talk about managing things, I, I can't imagine a more stressful thing for a family member to make healthcare decisions, make financial decisions for a parent or a sibling. Um, and so I usually talk to people about the fact that, you know, we want your your family member to be able to concentrate on your relationship with each other. You know, just we all know for those of us who have family and friends who struggle with addiction and mental health issues, we know that at the core that there's a relationship there. There's a relationship to be preserved and to be treasured, and it's not all roses all the time. But you know what? If that person is not under the pressure of having to make administrative decisions, healthcare decisions, manage money, really focus on the relationship that you have with them and that they have with you, that often is a great thing for everybody. It's a win all around. It's not a, it's not a loss in the way that some people sometimes feel it may be. So let's assume that you've gotten past the idea of naming your son who has mental health challenges as the person to make decisions for you, you know that that's not the right answer. You're going to name your daughter as the successor trustee. What kind of conditions can you place on the use of the money that might improve the quality of your son's life rather than uh, than just giving him the opportunity to blow through the money and and uh, and get no great benefit from it? Well, first of all, Robert, we want to make sure that the money that you've set aside for your your beneficiary is used for his or her benefit, that it's not just sitting in trust because he or she may have substance abuse issues or struggle with mental health uh, issues. We want to make sure that that money can be used. So we start from a pretty broad space in which we might recommend that the trustee have full discretion to distribute funds weekly or monthly or quarterly that might be not just the income from the trust, but the principal from the trust for that person's benefit. So usually, Robert, I start from a pretty broad space rather than a limiting space that the trustee can only distribute $500 a month or can only distribute for health care issues or can only distribute to pay for rent. I usually start with kind of a broad, expansive discretion for the trustee because presumably your decision to name the trustee of the person's trust who struggles, so the beneficiary is the one who may be struggling, Um, we want to have a trustee who's going to treat that person fairly, who's going to look at the person's needs, and distribute based on those needs, not whether or not the trustee agrees with his or her life choices. 
You know, we don't want to see scenarios where somebody will set up a loving trustee who simply has completely no relationship with the beneficiary. You know, we, we want to try and create a, a space of mutual respect. And, and oftentimes, broad discretion is a part of that. There's a harsh reality that people who leave uh, a family behind with, with that kind of problem, they have to deal with. If you name your daughter as trustee for the benefit of your son who has mental health addiction, spendthrift, whatever issues, uh, that is going to fundamentally change their relationship. And that's just a reality. You've been doling out a little bit of money in order to keep your son afloat, in order to keep him from getting into deeper trouble. And your daughter is going to step into that role. And she's not had to do that before. And she's going to have to have a similar relationship. So that's going to fundamentally change the relationship. And Robert, I think to that point, sometimes what we do is we have somebody from our case management team. We have a terrific team right now, Robert, of four different folks. We have a woman, Erica, who many of the listeners of our podcast are familiar with. Erica is our case management coordinator, handles fiduciary compliance here. On a regular occasion, Erica will come into some of those planning meetings with me and, and talk to people about the way that the successor trustee might manage a trust for that beneficiary with substance abuse issues. Erica, as part of the case management team here, regularly works with many beneficiaries who are struggling with similar issues. So she can talk about it from a first person perspective in administration. And after those conversations, sometimes people just decide that they don't want to have that sibling placed in that administrative role. They'd rather have the sibling be able to focus on the relationship with his or her sister or brother rather than being trustee. You know, as you as you know, Elizabeth, but listeners might not, we often act as trustee or other fiduciary. And, and in cases like that, sometimes we're a candidate. We don't particularly push ourselves. We don't want to try to sell you, as it were, on, on what a great job we do. But, uh, but here's a really nice idea. You could use somebody like us, doesn't have to be us, but somebody who is a neutral, non-family member to actually administer the trust and give your daughter the power to fire us or fire whoever is the trustee so that she can be her brother's friend and she can listen to his complaints about how the money is, is being doled out and, uh, and respond and not be the one who is doing the doling and, and making the, the decisions. And Robert, this is a lot to talk about in one estate planning consultation. So frequently when we start working with people who are helping um, do some planning down the road for a son or daughter or another family member who has substance abuse or mental health struggles. Um, We often have multiple meetings, and a separate meeting might be about who to name as a fiduciary. And most people who've met with me on that topic know that I regularly will send you off with a list of questions and referrals to other fiduciaries in our community. Just as you've said, Robert, Tucson is filled with different practices, some of them are law firms, some of them are individuals who are licensed fiduciaries and who can act as a successor trustee. It's important that people be really educated about those decisions, the costs, the questions, and our case management team here, they 
they are available to help answer those. So sometimes it does help when I have an estate planning conversation, they actually want to know how does it work when somebody who may want to spend the money on drugs needs a distribution for housing. Those are real life administrative issues that we deal with every day. And I think from a planning perspective, it's important to be honest about you know, leaving a lot of money, whether it's, you know, $100,000 or $10,000 for a beneficiary who's not going to be able to manage it, you need to think about the ways that the beneficiary is going to need those funds. It, it may not be for rehab. It, it may not be for school. It may be to help pay for an apartment. It may be to help pay for a new pair of tennis shoes. And you know what? That beneficiary has a birthday too. And that beneficiary, you know what? If there's a trust and somebody we're working with, we want to make sure that they're going to be able to go out to dinner or get a haircut or do something fun. Ultimately, we don't meet with people and, and develop estate plans where a beneficiary is going to be punished down the road. Those aren't clients that are a good fit for our practice. Like you said initially, this is a judgment-free zone. We, we really take that seriously. So if you want to leave money for somebody who is struggling, we're going to make sure that we can do it in a way that will actually be effective and the person can benefit. So here's what I think is the bottom line. If you're dealing with addiction, mental health, spendthrift issues, and you need to, to update your estate plan or create an estate plan in the first instance, you need to be clear-eyed and, and recognize exactly what the, uh, the, the significance of your decisions is going to be. Um, but our goal as your attorney trying to craft an estate plan for you is two parts. It is to give you peace of mind. And second part is to improve the quality of life for you and for the people who receive inheritances from you. That's our goal. And on that, we're going to end today. So I've been talking about addiction and mental health and spendthrifts with Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman, one of my partners here at Fleming and Curdy PLC, a Tucson, Arizona elder law firm. And you've been listening to Elder Law Issues, our regular weekly podcast. We hope that you will subscribe and return next week. Thanks. <music>